Hello, Alaska. This is Pat Race. And this is Matt Buxton. And this is a podcast about Alaska. So it's been a little while since we've podcasted, um, and we just kind of need to catch up on a whole bunch of things. So we've got... We talk about the vetoes, talk about the veto walkbacks, talk about why the walkbacks happen, talk about, uh, you know, that includes some of the elections coming up. We had, and speaking of new elections, we have uh, oil tax initiative on the horizon now and some big changes going on in the Alaska Senate, potentially. So a whole bunch of stuff to run down. <laughs> so, yeah. So let's talk about the vetoes first. Um, we, we got to experience a, a, a whole bunch of vetoes. And then the legislature crafted a bill to uh, put back in the funding for um, much of what was cut. They weren't able to override the vetoes. So they did it that way. And then that bill was vetoed. Um, but surprisingly, some of that stuff was left in. Rather significant things. Yeah. A, a lot of money for the university, which was kind of um, couched under this um, like agreement that the, that the governor signed off with um, the, the Board of Regents on, um, money for the Alaska State Council on the Arts, um, and money for senior benefits and, and some pre-K education stuff. I, yeah. I think like the, the governor walked these things back. He's calling them a, a restoration of funds, which I think is kind of like crummy. I think the the legislature put this these funds back. The governor's just deciding not to veto them again. So, you know, the reason he's he he's the one who took them away, by the way, you know, he's right. he's taking credit for restoring them. I think that's just something that's really been bugging a lot of people. So I just got to put that out there. Um, but the veto I really want to talk about the most is for me is the University of Alaska. Um, so instead of they, you know, the governor would look was looking at a hundred and thirty five million dollar cut. You know, that's forty one percent of the state support for the university system. That was reduced to one hundred and ten million dollars. So twenty five million dollar cut this year, which then becomes part of a multi year seventy million dollar cut that the governor will allow and permit, I think, is the the, the language um, in this compact that he signed. So that whole like agreement by itself is quite weird. It doesn't really have any like binding power to it, I guess, um, because the legislature is the one that, you know, funds everything. I guess the governor has the ultimate veto authority over it. But it's this kind of weird way of him kind of reaching into the university and trying to kind of micromanage in a way that the Alaska constitution didn't really envision, I guess. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, I, I went to school up in Fairbanks and was involved in student government. And I remember that was always this, this battle is the legislature wanted to be able to micromanage the university and really couldn't because of the way it's set up in the constitution. So this is, um, this is kind of a big step in, in gaining some executive authority over an institution that's operated fairly independently. Yeah. And I think, you know, that ultimately, you know, I think it's kind of the theme with a lot of the vetoes and especially how they apply to the university is that it just kind of created this like unnecessary uncertainty around the institution and its future. Um, I mean, they went, yeah. you know, the, these budget cuts basically sat in place for two months, you know, uh, or all these vetoes um, that he quote unquote restored were a reality for two months. So, you know, senior benefits, people went without those for at least two months, you know, um, some people went without them for like two, three or four months because they ran out of money for the program. Um, yeah. 
And I mean, I'm on the Alaska State Council on the Arts. We, you know, our staff was let go, and our we we our lease was given up. And I mean, there's <laughs> we had some real concrete things that we're trying to figure out now. Yeah, and you know, you look at the. So he also restored. Sorry, I I, I even used the fund word there. He didn't veto again. Um, the funding for like the state's agricultural program. So that includes like the state's hemp program where they destroy because they ran out, they had to lay off all their staff, like almost 20 people. I think they had to wow. destroy all like thousands of plants for this like um, uh, a pilot hemp program, industrial hemp program that they had started in Alaska, which was at the request of a Republican legislator from the Matt Sioux. So, yeah. you know, there's just like, all this kind of disruption in here um, that's really frustrating. And for, for the university especially, you know, you looked at a lot of students who decided to just go somewhere else. You know, there were resignations in in this last two months um, of where these vetoes were, were law. And um, people were starting to make life decisions on that. You know, they saw, um, you know, didn't didn't enroll or enrolled in other places or just took their took their opportunity somewhere else and i can speak about this personally because i was looking at um you know taking some degree courses or some non-degree or some courses this year to basically potentially get into a, a a graduate program and i didn't because all of the timelines you know i was looking at a you know i didn't want to hitch my wagon i guess to a university that is potentially in trouble like that and I think that's kind of where a lot of people are with this sort of stuff. And it's really kind of frustrating, I think. And so, yeah, yeah, I'm sitting here kind of because I think the vetoes were uh, announced. The second round of vetoes were announced like after the start of the next um, academic year or right next to it. So it's really hard to make a lot. It's hard to plan around this sort of stuff. There's no stability to it. No um, certainty. So. No, it wasn't. It wasn't theoretical. It was. It was real for a lot of people, and it wasn't a negotiation tactic. It was an actual like thing that happened. And so, like, it wasn't like an idea that he put out there. You know, it, it, he keeps saying this is a conversation starter, but Ooh, you, yeah, he's that, not. That makes me mad. He's yeah. not starting a conversation. He's actually taking action. You know, and so, um, you know, it, it's a very small slice of what's going on but i get to see it through the lens of the alaska state council on the arts and so um you know we closed our doors the uh the staff was let go we're not certain that they'll all come back we hope that they will um you know we might lose a lot of institutional knowledge in addition to the time that we've lost uh we we probably we've probably lost about four months of productivity overall given the time that we've been closed the amount of time it took to deal with closing down uh, kind of deaccessioning things, uh, and and then trying to ramp back up. So it's not when you talk about it being inefficient. It is really ridiculously inefficient. You're basically chopping a quarter of the year off for for a lot of these organizations that are just caught up in what does this new reality look like, and it completely undermines stability. It breaks any kind of momentum you have on any projects, uh, and then you have to figure out. Are we going to go through this again next year? Because there's been no communication about whether or not surviving this year, you know, like being given the opportunity to not be vetoed this year, does that mean that we're off the list next year? Does that mean that that discussion has been had or does that mean we're part of the ongoing discussion? And so it's very hard to know uh, what that is. And the Alaska State Council on the Arts, I, I have to say, 
I, I think, and I'm probably a little biased here, but I think we've been really a, like a model agency in trying to adapt and change as the legislature has pushed towards this, like do more with less, become more independent, uh, be more nimble. Um, you know, we bring, we're bringing in a lot more outside money to match our state dollars. We're, we're, we've changed the structure of our organization to be more independent and more agile and more efficient. And we're doing all of this stuff. And that was acknowledged by legislators like Ben Carpenter, um, who are, you know, very conservative, uh, at the same time that they're saying, ah, sorry, you got to go. And so it's really frustrating to have, uh, put in all this work and do what you're told to do and then get cut and then get uncut and then not know what the future holds. So it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel really in like a, like part of an inspired planning process. I would be surprised if the administration has reached out to you guys and said, you know, Hey, you guys need to get to a hundred percent non-state support or something, you know, because that's, that's kind of the part of this quote unquote conversation that seems to be missing is like the part where the governor engages with anybody. Um, because, you know, you look at a lot, I looked at a lot of the other vetoes that were um, passed down for like the capital budget, for example, you know, the governor has to kind of send a letter to the, to the administration talking about, or to the legislature talking about why they vetoed stuff. And a lot of it seems like you know, their complaints were like, well, we didn't have a full list of the inf- backing information behind this project, so therefore we had to veto it. And I I just I can't really imagine that they probably even asked for that in the first place, you know? And I think it's kind of this sort of thing where they're almost inventing reasons. And so, I mean, that's why you guys are going to be on your feet with it, right? Or like, keep kept on your toes, basically, because, you know, if the governor wants you guys to change how you're funded completely and get off the state funding like that should be a conversation that he should probably be actively involved in right now and i would be surprised if anything like that's been happening well and that's the thing is like this agreement with the university he's come around after the fact and said like okay this is how bad it can be do you want to make this agreement now rather than coming to them ahead of time and saying this is what i'd like to see and this is a roadmap, um and and then giving them a chance to react to that um, you know, and to deliver, but I, but, um, yeah, it's, it's really frustrating. And I think that, you know, you and I have been watching this process for a long time now. And we saw when, when the OMB, OMB economists went in front of the legislature, they couldn't answer questions. They couldn't provide data. They're really just shooting from the hip and they're kind of making things up as they go along. It feels like they're, you know, throwing darts at a board or, or just looking at a spreadsheet and like trying to make the numbers add up without really considering the consequences or, or what any of this money actually does. Um, or what the levers do that they're pulling. So, um, you know, it's, it's frustrating. But let's talk a little bit about how this decision was made about what to not veto in the second round because it, it seems like there's sort of two different possibilities. One is that they never intended to veto this much stuff in, from the beginning, and this was all part of a negotiation tactic of kind of over-asking, or there's some real external pressure uh, that's been brought to bear, and they're reacting to that. Um, and, and I'd be curious what you think, um, if maybe it's a mix of those two things, or if it's one or the other, or if there's like maybe another possibility. Well, I mean, I see, I've seen a lot of people, a lot of the ally, his allies in, in the um, in the media, there's, well, there's only really a few of them, but his allies uh, kind of seem to be thinking, you know, kind of assign the same sort of Trumpian that he's like, play, he's been playing 40 chess this whole time. <laughs> this is really was his whole strategy. And it's just, it was just a negotiation point. Have you ever heard of negotiations? You know, like that's kind of the sort of response that we've seen from his allies. And I think that's, 
like not true. I, I think that he really, you know, you look at kind of who Donna Arlen is, you look at the conversations that you had with her, they're, they were convinced that these were the right things to do from day one. And so I think that they were serious about doing this. I think, you know, I think especially because there was so much sort of pushback to the legislature, even restoring stuff in the first place of their second budget. You know, the, none of these would have been possible if the legislature didn't like push ahead and do it, do it again anyways, you know? And so, yeah, I think the governor was serious about this the whole time. You know, was he he never suggested that they should pass a second bill that so he could have a second shot at not vetoing stuff. So, yeah, it's totally this external pressure. You know, the the, the recall effort hit its signature goal, surpassed its signature goal within two weeks. Is it 30? It's, it's sitting at 36,000 right now. Yeah. I and mean, that's half of basically that's almost half of what they need for the full um, the second phase when they actually need to call the election. So that's like a. That's crazy, you know. Yeah. That, so you could you imagine that they would hit. Um, that's been a month, right? Three weeks. Is that right? No, three weeks. So in three weeks, they've gotten half of the signatures that they need for the full over or for the full recall petition. So um, I mean, they'll need to get all the signatures again. So it's not quite that easy, but yeah, I think that's wild. And you know, you look at it, and I think you know, it's again, it's really hard to understate the important or the, the how big of a deal it is that. You have um, people like Joe Sabelli, um, or you know, even like Siri Native Corporation um, getting involved in this. These are kind of like big, sort of wealthy groups. That the fact that they're getting involved is a big deal. But yeah, this guy owns a coal mine. Yeah, and and he's helping re, you know lead the recall effort. And so you know, you look at that. You look at um, well, Arl- a lot Arlister of, Jalewski is another person that's yeah. on that recall effort. Um, she was the Republican candidate for governor, you know, I mean, that's she's of an old school Alaska Republican if there ever was one. And it's a, you know, that's that's not a great thing for this for this group here to see that split, that fracture between um, kind of what Republicanism in Alaska used to look like and what it looks like today. Yeah. And I think, too, you look at, you know, and, and I think you know, if the governor, if if this is all, you know, it's someone, the groups that he could write off as fringe or, or quote unquote leftists or whatever, I think he could try to ignore the recall effort, more or less. Um, but, you know, you look at this and you look at, I think there's a lot of pressure coming from the, internally in the Republican Party. You probably look at stuff like, you know, Liz Snyder raising $35,000 in one night. Uh, uh, in her race against Rep- Republican Representative Lance Pruitt, who beat her only by, by fewer than 200 votes in the last election. like, Can you put that in context for me? Is that a lot for a state House race? That's that's it's a crazy amount for a state House race. I mean, that's usually a whole House race's budget um, for one candidate that she did in one night. And then wow. again, you have to keep in mind that, you know, this uh, she's raising it in this calendar year. So all of those donors can be hit up again next year. Um, for the same, you know, can can pull out their pocketbooks and give her another five hundred dollars. So that's a you know a, 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 a expensive Senate race will break. Um, you know, can get above a hundred thousand. Um, yeah, per candidate. And so the fact that she's probably going to break a hundred thousand uh, dollars for a House race is uh, intense. That's like really that's a that's a big deal. And I would imagine. Um, for represent, you know, for especially a lot of Anchorage representatives like Pruitt, like Sarah Rasmussen, 
maybe Josh Rivak, maybe Landy Shaw. I'm not really convinced with either of those guys. That probably is a, a kind of a wake up call, you know, that that the, these groups are going to be gunning for him. And uh, I think that's a big deal. And so I think that kind of stuff, you know, that sort of stuff is the kind of things that help lead to conversations about potentially overriding vetoes. And that's the kind of thing I think that, you know, rather than be overridden on these sort of things, and you can kind of look at a lot of the things that are restored, and those are, you know, broadly popular, senior benefits, the university, you know, even Alaska State Council of the Arts, you guys do a ton of programs, there's a lot of them that are involved with veterans, those are kind of issues that are important to Republicans. Um, Those are all kind of things that kind of have, you know, sort of constituencies here and there. And so um, if there was going to be any overrides, I think the list that the governor refused to veto for a second time was pretty close to what that would have been. Yeah. So that'll be interesting to see how that plays out during the next session and uh, the next budget that the governor puts together to see what, um, you know, see what he really goes after. Because it seems like this year he he sort of like went after some certain areas uh, and he left a few things um, that people thought he was going to go after, um, like the ferries and K-12 education. He kind of left those. And I feel like those are the ones that he's going to chase after this year. So it'll I mean, be, he cut the ferries pretty deep. But well, uh, that was the legislature, not, really. You know, yeah. the, the legislature oh, right, right, yeah. saw the saw the writing on the wall and tried to work out a deal. And I think a lot of that was Stedman. You know, like, right. okay, we're going to make some significant cuts, but they aren't going to be so wild and you're going to stick with them. And that was kind of what happened is that I feel like they they tried to do some managed cuts for the ferries. But I, th- I think that Dunleavy is going to definitely go after K-12 next year, and that'll be a real battle. Yeah, that's a good point um, that, you know, there's a lot of, you know, he's got a lot of these other studies going on about privatization of just various all sorts of services and kind of those sort of things that will bring changes. You know, he's talked a lot about education reform and, and never actually given us any sort of anything to chew on. But, um, you know, yeah. So I think there's a lot of kind of planning that will probably go into this next session for, for big, big monumental overhauls and changes and cuts. Yeah. Although it's hard to tell, it's, it's, it's a little bit hard to like read the tea leaves because he commissions the studies after they've made the decisions. So you can't really like <laughs> tell what the, what is the thing they're going to do because they aren't studying the next thing they're going to do. They're studying the last thing that they did trying to justify it. Right, uh, right. Anyway, so let's talk a little bit about the. Um, there's another initiative that just got announced, the um, the oil tax initiative, and um, I haven't really read through the language. I don't know if reading through it would <laughs> would necessarily help me as a as a <laughs> sort of a layperson, but um, but the fundamental like idea is that they're going to roll back some uh, tax credits that apply to uh, legacy fields. Um, and uh, maybe raise about a billion dollars more um, revenue through that. Is that roughly accurate? Yeah. Actually, so the, the, the text of the, the law they want to pass is only two pages long, which is oh. kind of amazing. Um, maybe I will read it. <laughs> so what it does is it basically targets, um, yeah, legacy fields. So fields that have, I think, produced over 400 million barrels. So it's basically just Prudhoe, Kaparik, and uh, Colville, I think, the, the kind of the big oil fields. Um, and then it basically creates, just kind of rewrites the taxes for those fields. And then it has a line, the, the important line in there is that basically that these tax rates are firm. You cannot, through any means, reduce your tax rate below 
these percentage rates. And it's like, I think 10 to 15, five, 10 to 15%, I think of, of like a gross, there's a gross minimum tax and then a net profits tax, I think. Anyways, there's just two forms of taxes and basically they pay whatever's the higher one. But um, yeah, the big thing is that the, the, the floor quote unquote is, is hardened. And so um, that's the big problem right now with the the, the Senate Bill 21, the was it, more Alaska Production Act, um, is that the tax rate, there is a floor, but you can get below it pretty relatively easily and carry forward losses, blah, blah, blah. And so that's kind of where some of these tax credits come in. There's also this per barrel credit thing, too, that also would get removed in here for these big fields. Um I think it's got a pretty good chance, honestly. I mean, they got so the the big the big deal is that they have this guy named Robin Brenna. He's basically I I think I described it in one of my stories as you know this ringer for oil and gas litigation. He's done all of the litigation for the municipalities, um, going after um, uh, the oil companies over the value of the the pipeline. Oh, the pipeline value, yeah, yeah. So Fair yeah, Banks so he was Valdez the guy that. And- yeah. Worked on all the that sort of stuff successfully, and um, you know, won basically left and right. And so, uh, I think he's he's a very smart, very shrewd kind of actor. And I think so. I think that he's got a lot of strategy involved in this. And so, um, it, this could be a big deal. And I think um, it's you know obviously would would attract tons of spending in it. But I think this is an easier campaign to run than the referendum was is the referendum it was kind of you know yes or no or do you want to change things and i think now i think you call it the fair share act you you know i think the the messaging around it you know with them kind of well, going the on the attack versus defense and the timing too is all really good i think you know you kind of look at it and you say hey back a billion dollars extra revenue sure would kind of smooth a lot of stuff over right now yeah and it's not i don't you know it doesn't seem like an over ask you know it's not it's not five billion it's not four billion yeah. it's you know it's 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 kind of in this zone of like well you know everyone does need to kind of take a hit here and this is a this is actually a, a kind of a reasonable number for such a large industry yeah. well um, and it's also going after the established fields too right which which really should be you know like they're just making money like if they're mm-hmm. up and running they're they're working we're not going to put them out of business uh it's not going to stop exploration uh, and the arguments that I've, I've seen a couple arguments that like, you know, this is going to really chill exploration, but, but it doesn't actually roll back that, you know, the incentives for the smaller fields. So I think it, they're careful right. about that. Um, it doesn't touch anything for the smaller fields. Right. So it, it'll be interesting discussion, you know, it'll get spun this way and that way. And I'll try and learn more about it, um, so that I can be more intelligent when I talk about it, but it's an yeah. interesting thing to see evolve uh, at this time when we are in need of revenue and we have, yeah. a, a dem, you know, we have, it's pretty easy to demonstrate that we've lost a lot of revenue over the last few yeah. years. Yeah. And I think the really interesting thing to watch with this is going to be what the legislature does, because remember the legislature can kind of preempt initiatives by passing their own law. I mean, they just did that with, um, the ethics law um, knocked off uh, a voter initiative that would have changed right. ethics laws. Uh, and then they basically just like walked the whole thing back eventually. Yeah. And that's kind of what they've done. And so, you know, do they come? Do, I, mean, I think having this legislature, which is still remember, it's a majority Republican legislature in both chambers, um, you know, that 
even though that we have kind of alliances that cut across party lines, that's really about the dividend and 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 government spending. It's not really about oil taxes. So where those alliances sort of align going forward on that issue is, is a, I think it's a little more of a traditional cut, basically. And so right. So they might draft their own legislation that's a little softer that is close enough to this legislation that this can't go on the ballot. Yes. So yeah. and then they could roll it back. And so that's a whole thing. But they may not so be able to roll it back depending on how the 2020 elections fall out, you know, with all, right. I mean, with yeah. all this anti-Dunleavy and so if they roll, sentiment. And if they roll it back, I would yeah. And I, so I think that's I think I think there's a lot of really interesting sort of political machinations there, which actually I think leads really well into kind of the last topic we wanted to touch on, which is the process of filling um, the late uh, Senator Chris Birch, a uh, Republican from Anchorage, who unfortunately uh, died from a, I think, a heart attack. Um, it was a aortic separation or something like that. Yeah. Um, so it's really awful. It was, it was um, unexpected. He was really, honestly, like, I think kind of stepped into the spotlight this year a little bit on the legis- legislative scene. I think yeah. he was one of the Republicans who really bucked sort of party politics and was advocating for what he believed in, which was, you know, uh, sensible cuts, um, you know, mixed revenue, maybe a smaller dividend, all that sort of stuff. He was kind of a good, he was a good guy, I thought, he, you know, by the yeah. end of it. And, you know, I, um, I didn't agree with his politics, but let me tell you my little story about him. As I, I went in and I was testifying to a committee back when he was in the House and, uh, uh, and I got pretty fired up and you, you know how when you're in committee, you're supposed to, you know, do the whole through the chair thing. And he kind of kept asking me questions directly. And I basically just got into an argument with him and it was, you know, it was a little heated on my end. And, um, and, uh, I think I, you know, I just, it's tough when you're in the, the hot seat to, to not get a little worked up. And, uh, we definitely disagreed. And I, I kind of left when I left the meeting, he jumped out of his seat and chased me into the hallway and he, he had a big smile on his face and he grabbed my hand. He shook my hand and he said, oh, I went to school in Fairbanks with your dad. He's such a great guy. Oh, it's good to hear you here up, up here talking about <laughs> what you care about. And like, and he was really supportive and he was so, um, I was so taken aback that he was just like, he was like so happy to hear from me, even though I disagreed with him. And he's like, he's like, it's important that you're saying what you're saying. And, uh, you know, thanks for sharing your opinion. And it was just like, um, it kind of caught me off guard that he was, so like kind and human about it all. And he sort of realized that like, okay, we're going to disagree about certain things and it might get elevated sometimes because, you know, people get passionate about the issues they care about. Um, but that he was able to step back from that and just say like, you know, like, Hey, we're just two people trying to make this state better. And we disagree about how to get there. Um, uh, and we can, you know, we can kind of get past that. And I, I just always really, uh, appreciated that because he was definitely in like a position of power there. Um, and, uh, for him to kind of like step down out of that position of power and just talk to me like a human being really meant a lot. Um, so yeah, he's, he seemed like a good guy and like listening to him talk on the floor, um, this session, uh, he really, he was really, he really cared about the people he represented and he, and he, he did a, a, a great job of representing them, I think. Um, you mm-hmm. know, even when he didn't dis- when, when he didn't agree necessarily with them, um, right? But uh, but yeah, let's let's uh, let's talk a little bit about f- the filling of that seat because that's a 
that's an interesting and complicated process. They the Republicans get to from that area get to send three names to the governor traditionally, and the governor appoints one of those people. We've had different things happen in the past, but probably what will happen this time is the governor will select someone off this list to fill the seat. And what is complicated and interesting about this particular situation is that right now the Republicans in the Senate who vote to confirm that person are sort of split 6-6 on uh, whether or not they support some of Dunleavy's policies, like particularly surrounding the PFD. So um, the person who's chosen, uh, if they are well aligned with Dunleavy, which they may be... Uh, which, which they will they likely be. I likely the be. Governor, the governor released like his priority statement for you know how he evaluates these candidates. And, yeah. And it, it included the PFD as one of the issues very kind of explicitly, so... Yeah, so will will that person either A, have trouble being confirmed by the Senate, or B, will it force a reconfiguration in the Senate? And that's what's really interesting to me is that like people like Bert Stedman, uh, Kathy Giesel might look around the room and say, wow, I'd rather work with, I'd rather continue working with Lyman Hoffman and maybe Jesse Keel and uh, Tom Begich and like some of these people then jump on board with Laura Reinbold and, you know, David Wilson. And so it might force a weird configuration in the Senate. Um, and yeah, that would be kind of interesting to me because I think that, you know, you've got guys like, like I said, Jesse Keel and Tom, Tom Begich, who are pretty pragmatic. You know, they they certainly have their own political views, but they're willing to compromise and um, they seem like they're good to work with. They seem like good people. Um, and. I think it might be an attractive option for some of the Republicans who have been organizing against Dunleavy. Yeah, I think so too. The the um, you, you've already seen them work together really closely. You know, I think like the relationship between Kathy Giesel and Begich, and also you know House Speaker Bryce Edgman has been really strong. I think they've gotten along really well. They've talked publicly a few times just about like the their their working relationship being strong. So. Yeah, I think there, there's a real possibility there. They've definitely kind of, um, there's been talk about this for a long time now. You know, you look at the Matt Sue legislators sort of kind of rebelling. They've always sort of been problematic, I would say, or, or difficult to work with. You know, so I think Laura Reinbold is like already out of the majority caucus, I think. Um, for voting against the budget, um, Senator Shower and Senator Hughes like walked out of the budget process and then came back for it was weird. Oh, right. It was this whole weird process. They were spotted, you know, with their suitcases on the steps yeah, of yeah. the building as yeah. the vote was going on. Um, well, and Costello was majority leader, but is you know like had to give up that position. And so there's been a lot of shuffling and and you know hard feelings. I think already. Yeah, and so I think. You know, I think the, the the idea was probably to hold it. I mean, I think having the majority and the minority kind of on the same page is probably effect, more effective and, you know, in keeping those kind of people not in line, but just kind of kind of minimizing the damage that they're able to do. And um, so I think if you kind of officially form a bipartisan coalition, I think it becomes... Uh, more difficult, I think, on that end. But yeah, yeah, you're right. And so you'd have, you know, they could reconfigure all Democrats and the moderate Republicans, and that'd be 13-7, I guess. And so, who knows? Uh, all that then becomes quite more, a lot more difficult. You know, you kind of have the same sort of 
political battles to get to the you know the yeah. right amount of votes right now because right now they can kind of compel them to vote for you know the things here and there um, well it seems like the other option is they could just kind of like go the other direction that you know they could sort of be over overwhelmed right i mean like if dunleavy puts in someone yeah. who ha- who is a, a strong supporter um you know birch pushed back against dunleavy and even wanted a much lower pfd um, so if you put someone in that has the opposite viewpoint, um, it could really change things. Right. Yeah. Right. So anyways, so, that'll be interesting to see how it unfolds. Yeah. I guess, I mean, we can't really know, but it's, um, the thing that is intriguing to me is that it might force a reconfiguration of some sort. Well, and the interesting thing about that too, is that next year is a year when everybody gets to pick their, um, redistricting board appointees. And so if there's a significant change in the House or in the Senate, I mean, that you could have a different person potentially making those decisions. And maybe if if Giesel wants to keep her power, you know, and 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 um, but needs to work with Democrats, you know, there potentially could become a agreement between her and Lyman Hoffman or something like that to appoint basically something that everyone can agree to. Um, so that could get really interesting there too. Yeah. How, that's how a whole kind of, that's a long-term play there. Well, so. yeah. And so I've heard a lot of people talking about the redistricting, um, board. Do you want to just give me like a very quick synopsis of why that's so important? Well, so the redistrict, so the, in Alaska, they redraw the, the legislative districts every, um, 10 years after the census. So the process really begins and would begin in 2020. The, the new maps would really be in place for the 2020 two elections um uh there could be court battles of course over this whole thing too so they're kind of expecting there to be more seats in the matsu this time just because of the way the population has changed um but basically the the way the redistricting board this is the board that kind of produces this this new map and these like senate pairings and you can do a lot of stuff you kind of do a lot of shady stuff with this as far as basically kicking people out or merging districts in a way that makes them more Republican or bundling Democrats together, that kind of thing. Um, the way it works is the governor gets, I think, two seats. The Then the Senate president gets a seat. The House Speaker gets a seat. And then the Supreme Court Justice gets a seat, too. And so they get, get to all kind of nominate somebody. Um, and last time around, I think it was basically four Republicans, I think. And then, um, uh, the, uh, la- the, the Supreme court, um, picked somebody from rural Alaska to, uh, to help on that. And so, yeah, there's some really weird stuff that can happen with it. Um, I covered a lot of the last litigation. Um, you know, there were weird efforts, like there was the, um, the Kawasaki finger was a thing that came out of this, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And that is a, um, it was a oh, it, it was, was a, boundary, a little tiny thing, boundary line like that jumped the it river. It looked like it really did look like a little finger, and it, a little boundary line stuck out from uh, Representative Steve Thompson's district and grabbed on um, Sonia Kawasaki's house. And Sonia Kawasaki is Scott Kawasaki's sister, not his wife, as somebody apparently thought. <laughs> and uh, so her house is drawn into it. So it didn't even grab Scott's house. That's funny. And so that that happened there. There, there's been other things. You know, there was a another weird one where in Fairbanks again that jumped the river and grabbed um, 
uh, Mike Miller's home, a former uh, conservative uh, state senator, and put him into uh, Click Bishop's district, a much more moderate Republican senator. And then, of course, Mike Miller filed to run against him in the primary and uh, ended up pulling out right, you know, kind of pretty early in the process. But, you know, there's other things, you know, they kicked Betty Davis out of her seat um, in, in, you know, pairing her with Eagle River. Um, you can do a lot of kind of interesting things there, especially, you know, you look at how, you know, they also decide when seats will be up for re-election too, as, as far as the four-year Senate seats. And so there's a lot of things you can do to basically extend you know, and, and sort of cement, you know, majorities on either side, you know, it's kind of, it's a way to extend power. And I wish there was a better way to kind of take the politics out of it. But until then, we're kind yeah. of stuck with this process. Yeah, that's interesting, because the you're, you're in a situation where whoever's in the majority has no incentive to change how it works, because they benefit from it. And uh, so it will just continue to exist the way it does, probably in perpetuity. Yeah, I mean, they they came into Fairbanks where Fairbanks had two, um, two Democratic senators, and what they wanted to do was initially split um, the city of Fairbanks. So the city of Fairbanks has its own Senate seat, which makes it's about the right population to have one Senate seat. What they did was they split Fairbanks. So one of Fairbanks' house districts was um, was in got split out, and the other house district got split out. So a Republican, I think John Coghill, would have got half of Fairbanks, and then um, both uh, Senate Democratic senators uh, uh, Joe Pasquan and Joe Thomas would have been in the same district, um, and then they got caught doing that, and then the outcome was that they had three Republican senators instead of two Democratic senators. And so, um, it's, yeah, you can get, you can get a lot done with it. And so I think there's kind of been a lot of talk about, that's kind of why I think some of those, um, sort of rebellious sort of Republicans, the Dunleavy line Republicans are not really willing to really jump ship quite yet because I think they are rightly sort of concerned about what a bipartisan coalition might mean, for the redistricting board seat, so yeah, and for their own future, and for their own future, right? So yeah, all right. Well, hey, that was I think a pretty good roundup. Uh, let's, let's call that an episode yeah. and uh, and ch- check back in uh, in a, in a bit. Sounds good. Oh, hey, maybe I should mention that I'm doing some political cartoons. Oh yeah, for you yeah. Or over at ye old midnight sun. Yeah. Um, I am. Yes. <laughs> it's been fun. It's been really good. It's like a nice. Uh, uh, convergence of my uh, insatiable uh, uh, attachment to the AK leg hatch hashtag and the the legislative process and state government, um, and my my interest in making comics and art, and so it's a nice convergence of those things. I really enjoy. Yeah, it. and they've been, they've been really popular. Um, oh, good. You know, I think people really liked them. I've seen people engage with them a lot. I see the I also get to see the analytics on them, and they do it pretty good. So oh, that's funny. I've been drawing a lot yeah. of Dunleavy. I want to get away from drawing so much Dunleavy, but he keeps m- making it all about him. I know. I actually got an email from a reader the other day that said, hey, can you figure out a way to not put so many Dunleavy pictures out there? I think it's kind of playing into his power a little bit. So, Oh, well, I don't yeah. worry. I'm not worried about that. I don't think I'm making him more powerful, but I. Uh, no, I do not. But think, I, yeah, maybe I should I, just. Yeah, 
I just uh, I just get bored drawing the same dude every week, and uh, I I want to I got all these characters I want to develop, and I you know like I have a I have a, a great economist guy that I'm so excited to to um, draw pictures of and, uh, <laughs> and developing a bunch of other little characters. Um, maybe I'll, I'll I'll try and do something that's that, that's not a Dunleavy uh, comic next week. So that'll be that'll sounds be fun. good. Okay. All right. Well, have a good one. We'll catch you later. Goodbye, Alaska. See you later.